Good morning. If you you have your Bibles as you're making your way back, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai, Haggai, however you want to say it. I say Haggai, but it's, you know, each is his own here. But um, if we don't already know one another, I know we know most most people in this room. My name is Clint. Uh, And and if you do know us, we've actually had a a big transition here recently. Um, So the past year, we've traveled around and and Melania's led worship and I've preached and that's been our ministry. But over the past year, what I've really been burdened with was as what does it look like to be in the local church, and how, how do we do ministry there? And so over the past year, God was kind of stirring in my heart, and the church we were currently members of in Blackshire, Georgia, called Bridge Community Church, um, a, a situation came up where I was presented with the opportunity to be the associate pastor there, and as of last week, I officially am, have been titled as that. Um, so we'll be transitioning over this summer to, to move to Blackshear, um, to kind of transition into the role that I'll be doing there. So we're super excited about this transition in our lives. But, and what I want to do here with this morning is that, but our hearts still are here in Alma. And the message I've got for this morning, I've preached it at a few churches already in Alma, and I believe that it's something that God's kind of nudging me to do over this course of the next year as, as we still are able to travel with our ministry. That's one great thing about going on staff there is that they're still allowing us the opportunity to travel, um, is that, this message specifically kind of just like I feel like the Lord is directing me in this direction or in this book of the Bible and talking about revival is I think that in our church culture we use revival a lot and we just kind of cast it out there as if it's something that we can program or we can fabricate or we can just make it into something. But the reality is, is that revival in the heart of a believer should be normal. And I believe that this message needs to be heard in Alma because as many of you already know, as, as you, you also grew, bo- grew up, born and raised here in Alma, that our churches in Alma need revival. And we think that, like I said, we think that word, we think revival as church growth. I'm not talking about just simply church growth. I'm talking about an actual desire and a longing to see God move in our lives and in the lives of our church. So every church in the world should be saying we need revival. But specifically because I've born, I've been, I was born and raised here, and I love the, the, the city, and I love the people here. Alma needs revival. And because revival should be normal, I believe there are a lot of things that we're actually doing to stop it from happening. That it's not just simply, well, Clint, what do we need to do to see revival happen in our churches? It's more so of, what are we not doing? Because we can program it, we can schedule it, we can do all these things. And I'm all for having revival services. I got to preach at a few of those this past year. I'm all for doing that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Are we willing to do what's necessary to see it happen in our lives and in the lives of our church here in Alma and in all nations? And here in Haggai, what's happening is Israel has been in exile for 70 years. And a new ruler comes in and sends them back to their homes in Israel, and the first, one of the first things God tells his people to do is he says, rebuild my temple. So they start to rebuild the temple, and, and, and rebuilding the temple, what this is representing is it's, re, re, it's representing them rebuilding their relationship with God, restoring the worship they had with him. And God sends his prophet Haggai to come in and encourage this to, for these people to do this. And we see, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you see some of these happening, these things, these things are happening. In Ezra 3, 8, all of a sudden, the building of the temple stops. And they give two excuses. One excuse is they feared the opposition. Another excuse, they feared that they didn't have enough resources. So regardless, they had excuses of why revival was not happening in their lives. And here comes Haggai to give them a word of the Lord to stir them on in doing what God's told them to do. 
And I wonder what is it that is in our hearts that stops from revival happening in our lives and then as a result happening in our churches. I think one thing is this, is we need to understand as revival, this is the definition, it is coming or bringing back to life. And few people in America, few people would deny that revival needs to happen in the church, but at the same time, few people will actually do what's necessary to see it happen. So I believe from this text we can see four different things that stop revival. If you're a note taker, I'm going to be pretty easy to follow with my notes here. First thing is this indifference to what God says. First thing that hinders revival is indifference to what God says. So Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go on to verse 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, and the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people... To say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We'll go ahead and continue to read the rest of it verse, to, to verse 11. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens have with, above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land, and on the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil on which the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Look back at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people... So the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This first thing that hinders revival is being indifferent to what God says. This phrase, these people, usually when God refers to the people of Israel, He refers to them as my people. But now God is fed up. These, they've, they've gone from my people to these people. These people aren't doing what I told them to do. They're not having proper fellowship with me. God was not pleased with what was going on. These people were delaying for years what God has commanded them to do now. Remember the two excuses, fear of opposition and not having enough resources. And we see here it says these people said the time's not right. So what was really going on, it was not that they had external factors. It was that honestly what was going on is they were indifferent and apathetic to what God was telling them to do, which then as a result resulted in delayed obedience. See, when God gives His Word to His people, the only proper response that God wants is worship and obedience. That's what He desires from His people is when He gives us a word from Him in His Word, we know that this is coming from Him and we are to worship Him because of what He's saying and what He's doing in our lives and then live for His glory in return. There's no room for anything else. And if you look back at the book of Ezra as what's going on with these people and as the nation of Israel is being restored and the temple is being rebuilt, 
you see Ezra give a command to the people. He says, study the law of the Lord, do it, and teach the statutes in all of Israel. So it makes it really simple for us of what, the, what proper worship looks like. See, when God's people don't listen to His word, there are at least three things happening. So if you're a note taker, here's a sub point, number one. Three things that are happening when we don't listen to His word. Number one is this, is we don't believe it's truth. We, we, we read it, we talk about it, we even sing it, but deep down we don't believe the words that God has said and we don't believe the words that we're confessing to Him. So sometimes we, you know, sometimes, yeah, we, we all have doubts and what it looks like in following God and we have doubts with certain things, but God doesn't call us to know these external things. God gives us a clear manuscript for our lives in His Word. He calls us to know that He is the answer, that He's providing it all. And Jesus even says in Luke 9, 23, He says, Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Me. He doesn't say where He's going. He doesn't say exactly what He's going to do. He just says, follow Me. And the command is still the same for us today. So the first reason, first thing that's happening when we don't listen to His Word is we maybe don't believe that it's actually truth. The second thing is this, is that one of the primary reasons the Great Commission has not been fulfilled just yet is because we are waiting for people in ministry positions or missionaries overseas to do what God has called His people to do. We, we say, all right, that's the missionary's job to take the gospel to all nations. That's the pastor's job to reach the people in the congregation and to reach the people in Alma. Folks, God gives us the Great Commission for us to take it as, as His Word and to live it in our own lives. It's not just simply one person to go and fulfill that. It's to the church. So we are waiting for somebody else to do what God has called us to do. How often, that, think about when you're growing up, that if you have siblings, when your parents tell you to do something, you're like, man, I, you go do that. I, I don't want to do that. You go do that. And it's the same thing is true today as God tells us what to do, and we say, well, maybe at a better time, or maybe somebody else can do it. When God's speaking to us and saying, no, you go and rebuild, you go and revive. I'm taking the word. See, this is also a reason why we read certain parts of Scripture and we avoid others, right? Like we love to go to the Psalms and Proverbs and, and be encouraged by the word, but we don't want to stand in Romans and be convicted. We don't want to hear what it looks like to really follow God's word and to shed off our old lives and put on the new life in Christ. We'd much rather hear about God saying these lavish and romantic-like things to us. And the third thing that happens when we don't listen to His Word is, the third reality is this, and you've probably heard this phrase before, but delayed obedience is disobedience. It is sin. Putting off what God has clearly communicated for us to do right now is a sinful act against God because it's saying to God, it's not saying to God, no, it's saying something much, much worse to God. It's saying not yet. Not yet. I don't want to put away that sin just yet. I don't want to do that thing you're calling me to do just yet. I don't want to do what you're saying do now, right now. I don't want to do that. Can you imagine if, if you have kids that you tell your kid to do something and then for 16 years they don't do it? And if you have teenagers, if you raise teenagers, you're like, that's pretty much what it's like raising the teenagers. You tell them for 16, 18 years to do something, and they still don't do it. 
But we see here that that's what happened with these people is God told them to do something. They started to do it and they stopped. And for 16 years, they were not doing what God told them to do in rebuilding the temple. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And see, if we want to see true revival to happen in our lives and in our churches, we have to stop first avoiding the words of God and start responding to God like we actually trust and believe in who He says He is. That's the first thing is that we need to stop being indifferent or apathetic to what God says as these people were doing. The second thing that stops revival is this, prioritizing the external and neglecting the internal. second thing that stops revival is prioritizing the external and neglecting the internal. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came out of the hand of Haggai the prophet is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a, into a bag with holes prioritizing the external and neglecting the internal. See, these people were avoiding what God had told them to do, and instead, they didn't just simply stop doing this over here. They started building paneled houses. And if you research what this looks like in the context of the Old Testament, paneled houses were houses of luxury. So remember their two excuses? We're fearful of opposition outside of our, outside of our nation, and we don't have enough resources. Guess what? They had enough resources. They just stewarded it to what they wanted it to be stewarded to. They decided to prioritize their own lives and their own things and their own stuff instead of what God was calling them to do as a people of God. And even then, they never had enough. This is what idolatry looks like. Idolatry is us putting anything above God. Did you notice that what was being said here were not necessarily bad things. It's talking about work talking about food, talking about drink, talking about earning wages. These are not necessarily bad things, but what idolatry is is when we take good things and turn them into God things. And that's what these people were doing. Yeah, God was in their life, but He was just a sticky note on their life. They really wanted to prioritize what really mattered at the depth of their core. Is it bad to work hard? Is it bad to have food? No, obviously not. But here's the question. To what end is all of this? What's the point of it all? What's the point of us doing this? Notice verse 5, he says this. He says, consider your ways. He says this phrase a couple of times in this text. Consider your ways. What he's saying to them is he's saying, examine your life, your habits, your character. And when you examine those things, you can clearly see that it's taking you somewhere. This is why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful and wicked. And if we are not careful, because we are sheep, we follow something. It does not take a whole lot in our lives to attach our hearts to something and it take us somewhere else other than the gospel and other than the glory of God. It's not that difficult. Even in my own life, it is not that difficult to get distracted, to prioritize things that don't really matter, or to make too much of a deal of things that don't really matter, and then I just, I just have Christ as an add-on in my life instead of being at the core of who I am. Matthew 6, Jesus says to us, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then these things will be added to you. 
If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the theme of Ecclesiastes is talking about vanity, meaning all things are temporary, all things are meaningless, all things are vapor, they're going to come and they're going to go. All things are like this. But here's the problem, is that this is happening in our hearts, and then what happens is this this has infiltrated the church today is that we are so busy with programming everything, we are so busy in religious activity, we are so busy in doing things that we forget at the heart of God what it really means to follow Him. And I'm not against programs, I'm not against doing things, and I'm not against us being busy for Christ, but is it for Christ or is it for us? Is it making much of Christ or is it making much of us? Jason Allen, he's a, uh, the president of Midwestern, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says this, In many of our churches, we are too busy rearranging our furniture when we should be deep cleaning the carpet. We're too busy doing all these things and we forget that we need to get down in the dirty and ask ourselves, who are we and what are we about? A lot of the churches that I've been to this past year, just to be quite honest and be transparent with you, over the past year, a lot of the churches that we've got an opportunity to go to are dying. And when you go in these churches, you look and you see and you talk to these people and what you hear is that there's a desire to do something, but there's a horrendous way and a horrendous method to try to get there. It's all about bringing in the right God, doing the right thing, having the right way of doing it instead of saying we need to fall on our faces before a holy God and be repentant of our sin and get back into what does it mean to really fellowship with God and starting there. And then adding all these things as we go prioritizing the external and neglecting the internal. See, instead of us doing an open heart surgery on our lives, what we simply want to do, especially in the church, is we want to put a band-aid on everything. Let's just cover it all up. Let's just make it look good and make it be and feel right and give the appearance of everything's good when deep down we're missing it. So here's the question, where does revival start? Some people will say it means starting on a revival service. And like I said, I'm not against that. I'm just saying that just because you're scheduling revival does not mean it will happen. So some people will say maybe it's a service. Somebody might say, well, we'll bring in a certain guy. Or maybe it's we'll start a new ministry. No, no, folks, listen. Where revival starts is right where you're sitting. It starts in your own life. It can start on a Sunday morning. It can start on a Tuesday afternoon in your prayer closet. God does not care where it happens. He just wants it to happen in your life that you are revived by the Spirit of God in the cross of Christ. Right where you're sitting. Right inside of you. Revival is a continual renewal in our hearts as God presents Himself in His Word, reveals our sin, shines His light on His grace for us, and pumps life of worship back into our hearts. Folks, revival is just a bunch of messed up people repenting of our sin and believing in the gospel. And it can happen today or tomorrow. It does not matter. It's really simple. So when we neglect or we prioritize the external and neglect the internal, we are stopping or hindering revival from happening. The third thing that hinders revival is this, glory hunger. We're hungry for glory in the process. And this stops revival from happening. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God gives them the end result of what they're doing. 
It is not to simply have a place of worship. It's not to simply just gather together. It is for them to come together and please and glorify the Lord. They have been living their lives to please themselves and building their own castles. And God said, I'm done with that. It's time to start building my kingdom. That's what he wants for us to do. Folks, listen to this. Satan would love for us to have revival in our churches and for us to point to the reason or the person of why it happened. He'd love for us to be able to explain to people, well, you know what? Revival happened when we had so-and-so in the life of our church. Revival happened when we had that program that was going on. Revival happened when we were doing this, that, and other. Folks, that's what Satan would love for to do is because we can point to the person or the program or the place of why it's happening instead of it being that God moved in a miraculous way. That God moved in a way that we cannot explain. And yes, we created ministries and programs. Yes, it was God was working in the hearts of certain people. But at the end of the day, God was receiving all the glory. Satan would love for that to happen for us. What we are building is not for ourselves. So we need to get out of the way of what God wants to do. See, we don't want to receive revival for the sake of there being a revival. We don't want to see hundreds of people coming into our churches here in Alma and all nations just because we want to see certain numbers. And we don't want to start new ministries just because we want to accommodate people and make them comfortable. We want to see revival. We should want to see revival because we want to see God's glory displayed in a way like never before that we can't explain to people. So you're just going to have to come and sit under God's word and understand how he's speaking to you through his word right now. Everything we do is for, glory, for, God, for God's glory. That was how we are wired as believers is to do that. See, if we're not careful, we can long to see the results from God and miss the presence of God. We can long to see stuff happening and miss the heart of Jesus. It's not that hard to do. J.R. Vassar, he wrote a book called Glory Hunger, and this is where this, I mean, this, it, it rocked my, my life of how to do ministry. He says this, he planted a church, it started growing, it was multiplying, and it was, it was expanding. They were doing things. And here's what he said. This is the pastor of the church. He says this, I found myself doing the things Jesus desired with the motivations that Jesus despised. I found myself doing the things that Jesus would have loved or would have wanted me to do, but my motivation was to see my own glory and my own brand and my own church be exalted over the name of Christ. Remember the phrase, consider your ways. Consider your ways means to repent. And then he gives them, what's the opposite, or what's the other end of that? He says, consider your ways and repent. And then he says, go, do something with this. Stop waiting for God to call you to do something. If he's called you from death to life in Christ, he's also given you a command by the Great Commission to live missionally for him. Yes, I'm all for us figuring out what does it look like tangibly in the life of our churches? How can we serve in certain ministries? How can we serve in our community? All of these things, but whatever it looks like, we need to go. Here's the thing. I'll make a statement and ask a question. I want us to all heed these words. Listen, we will never see true revival. This is the hard part of testing our glory hunger. We will never see true revival if we only desire it for our own church and our own selves. We won't see real revival. 
maybe in our own lives a little bit, but if, if deep down at our core, if we want to see revival only in our church, then we don't understand what it means for God's glory to go, beyond, go to all nations. Because here's a question. I want you to think about this, and this is a hard question to, to wrestle with, but here's a question. Would you be willing to pray for revival to happen at all the churches in this, in this community and be okay if it does? That's when we know if we're really longing for revival to happen in Alabama, Georgia. When we want to see it not just happen in our church here, we want to see it happen in our churches in this community, in these communities around us, and in, in America, and in all nations. Is Would we be willing to pray for revival to be, happen and then praise God when it does happen? Or do we simply just want it to happen within my little bubble? The church of Christ is so much bigger than just one church, and it takes a village to reach all nations. That's one thing that I see through this past year of our ministry is that we often, so many times, we want to do our things and, and figure out and not really understand what it means to be the body of Christ, even though we disagree on certain things. Like, that's fine. That what our theological leanings are, are, might be different than somebody else in Alma. That's fine. But at the end of the day, are we willing to pray for and with one another to see the gospel transform this city? But I believe that, I know I saw it in my own heart this past year, that so many times is that I have so much more of a care for my personal ministry to grow than to see somebody else in somebody else's ministry to flourish more than mine. That's because I'm selfish and I'm hungry for glory and I needed to repent as these people needed to do as well. So the third thing that hinders revival is our hunger for God's, for glory that only belongs to God. The last thing that hinders revival, and this is probably the most important one, it's simple, but it's most important. last thing that hinders revival is this, desiring change without actually desiring God's presence. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, and on man and beast, and on all their labors. We see here that clearly that putting off rebuilding the temple was not just because these people were being lazy. It was because they didn't have a longing to meet with God again. That's what the temple of God was created for. It was to designate and showcase God's glory dwelling there. Not because God was confound and confined to that place. It was a representation of worshiping and meeting with God. These people have been told, go back and restore that. Go back and re have revival. Go back and rebuild. And they started and they stopped. Not because they were lazy. Not because there was fear of opposition. Not because they didn't have enough resources. resources but it was because at the end of the day, they did not think God was valuable enough to actually restore the worship they needed to have with Him. So they wanted to see the blessing of God without understanding what it looks like to worship Him. Sometimes we can confuse the blessings of God with the busyness of people. 
and think that we have activity going on when we are missing what it looks like to really worship and experience a holy and eternal God. The more we desire to see change from God without doing what is necessary to have fellowship with Him, the longer we'll be like these people and have seasons of drought. We'll have that happen. Listen, folks, we need to desire God more than we need to desire revival. That's the problem we have in our churches is that we desire to see stuff, but we don't desire to see Jesus and experience Him and worship Him and know Him and grow in Him. See, it's good for us to be zealous and passionate about living for Jesus, and it is right for us to have a passion to reach people. But listen, and you've heard this probably in a different way you said this, this said before, but our impact in our mission for Jesus only goes as far as our worship for Jesus does. I think it was John Popper, David Platt, I'm not really sure. One of them says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Meaning that we go in our missional living because we are going to somebody or somewhere that does not have a worship for God in, anchored in their soul. So at first we have to get back to, well, what does it mean for me? And what does it mean to look, what does it look like for us to worship Jesus again? To have personal revival in my own soul. To see God restoring me and reconciling me and redeeming me and removing my sin and drawing me to repentance. And for me to understand to be soaked in the gospel of Christ. To then understand of now what it means to be on mission for God but to first understand what it means to meet with Him. If you will, turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 27. And we're almost done. Psalm 27 is one of my favorite psalms. I was introduced to it this past year. Maybe you've read over it in my life, but I don't know. It wasn't until this past year that the light turned on. Psalm 27 verse 4 says this. It says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This is King David talking. He didn't say, one thing I I desire of the Lord is all the riches in the world. One thing I desire of the Lord is to be the greatest king that ever ruled. One thing I desire of the Lord is to be the greatest warrior that was ever known in the Old Testament. He says, the one thing I desire most is to dwell with God, to gaze upon His beauty, and to inquire from Him. He wanted to abide in God, to admire God, and to ask and learn from God. The last thing that we need in seeking revival is for us to simply get excited but still miss Jesus. David was longing to see God. He was not concerned. I mean, I'm sure he was concerned in some way, obviously, with the kingdom of Israel because he was the ruler of it. But what did he want most? He wanted to dwell with God. He wanted to look at God. He wanted to gaze upon God. He wanted to inquire of God. He wanted his life to be centered and anchored on God. And the same is true for us is that what do we want most in our lives? Is it to see Jesus or to simply see change happening around us? This is the problem we have, a fundamental problem in our 21st century American churches that we love the idea of Christ being our Savior, but we hate the idea of Christ being our Lord. 
is that we love the idea that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and great that I'm not, all, I'm not punished for my sins for eternity anymore, but we hate the idea that God demands something from us, which does not mean that he demands our works to make us saved. It means that he demands our lives and our surrender to him. That this is what happens when we go from being a fan of Christ to being a follower of him. See, it's easy to be a fan of something to look at it and say, man, I love that, I like that, I think I'm going to adopt that into my life. But it's another to be a follower of it, meaning that whatever happens, whatever happens in that relationship, I'm here. Whatever he wants of me, I'm here. Whatever he asks of me, I'm here for it. Wherever he goes, I'm going with him. We love in an American church Jesus as a Savior, but we hate Him as our Lord. And Christ says that He's both. So do we truly desire to see change in our hearts from the gospel on the inside out? Do we truly see, seek that in our lives? Because that's the last thing that's going to hinder revival. So the four things again, the first thing that hinders revival is us being indifferent to what God says. I'm not caring what he's saying to us. Well, that's for somebody else. Not a good time. Maybe it'll work out later. Second thing is that we prioritize the external and we neglect the internal, that we try to create our lives and fix our lives in a way that suits us instead of actually longing to do what God has called us to do at the heart of what he's called us to do in his word. The third thing is that we get glory hungry. We want to see the results of God, but we don't actually want to see God move in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And the last thing is that we desire to see change, and we don't desire to experience God's presence. Tim Keller, pastor and author up in New York, he says this. He gives four, three things that we can look at when revival happens. So here's what revival looks like when, I, when it does come. Here's what it looks like. Number one is that sleepy Christians will wake up. If I could say, scream anything I wanted to, in every church in America today, I would tell Christians, you need to wake up. You need to wake up to the sin in your own life. You need to wake up to the lost world around you. You need to wake up that God's given you a purpose to live out in the mission that he's given you through the Great Commission and given through this church. We need to wake up. So many of us are getting the routine of what it means to follow Jesus, and we don't actually follow Jesus. We do the religious things. We do all the stuff, but we don't understand that the heart of God is for us to long to know Him, to long to meet with Him, and long to follow Him wherever He calls us to go. Christians, we need to wake up. Churches in Alma, we need to wake up. There's, if, if I, I don't know the exact statistic for this region, but in our region, in the Piedmont Okefenokee Baptist Association over in Blackshear, one statistic came out like this, and it said something, and I might get it kind of off, but that if every church in that association had two services on Sunday morning, and both services were filled to the, to, filled to the brim, there's still a large portion, like 30 to 40 percent of people, that still would not have a place of, to meet in worship on Sunday, which shows that there is work to be done. Then to go outside of that, to expand beyond that, here's the other challenge the Christians need to understand is that we need to get off this whole Bible Belt mentality and thinking that everybody is saved. They're not. There are many people in our churches today that do not know Jesus. 
And that's the second, that's the second point. First point of when revival comes is that sleepy Christians will wake up to what's going on. Second thing is nominal Christians actually get converted. There are a lot of people here in Alma, Georgia, and if you've been, if you're born and raised here, or if you're new here, it, it doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. If you've been raised in the Bible Belt, everybody believes they're saved. And that the reality, if you ask somebody, what does it mean to be saved? They will probably tell you to go to church and to try to be a good person. And folks, that is heresy. What it means to be saved is to know that you are a sinner against God. And God has sent His Son, Jesus, to restore and redeem your soul and bring you into fellowship with Him, to know Him as Savior and as Lord. And in so many of our churches right here in Alma, we are walking and rubbing shoulders at, in our, in our um, jobs, in our workspaces, in our schools with people who think they know Jesus, but they are going to go to hell because they don't know Him. And I'm not sitting here saying that I dictate their future. I don't know. But I do know this, that this is what the gospel looks like. This is what the fruit of the gospel looks like in His Word. And I can look at it and say, I don't know. Do you really know Jesus? And when revival happens, that wakes people up that are sitting in our pews and in our chairs and our churches to see that God is still a God that saves, even if you've been going to church for 40 to 50 years. The last thing that happens when revival comes is that non-Christians that know they're not saved, they see the people of God doing what God has told them to do and actually reflecting the heart of Jesus, and they say, I'm interested in that. Of course, the gospel is offensive in its nature. We don't have to be jerks for Jesus. But when we live out our faith, people are going to be repelled by it because they don't want anything to do with a God that says, give me all of your life because I gave all of my life to you. But at the same time, as we are living for Jesus, people are interested in, in why, what's going on in your heart. And you don't have to say, you, we have nothing in us to say, well, you know what? I've just determined to be a better person. You know what? I've determined that I'm just going to try harder and, I've, and God loves me because of what I'm doing. It's like, no, God loves me because of God being who he is. And he can love you the same. He can save your life. Can I talk to you about Jesus? You know why the world and our country, everybody's looking at the church and laughing? is because the church doesn't look consistent on what the gospel is anymore. We give them a version of Jesus that's not consistent with the word. But if revival is happening in our hearts and we are, our lives are consistent with what God is saying to us in his word, people will might start to say, not everybody, not everybody's going to get it. But people will start to say, there's something different in that person. There's something different in that church. Something different in that town. I would love Nothing more would I love. I pray for this church, for churches in this community, often that God would bring revival. I would love to move to Blackshear, Georgia, and hear a revival happening in Alma. I would love for that. But are we going to do what's necessary for it to happen? Are we going to keep living out lives that hinder this from happening? Are we going to busy ourselves with other things? Are we going to neglect certain things? Are we going to strive for a certain glory for ourselves and not for really being for God? We're going to desire his presence. Folks, God can bring it right now. It doesn't have to look on this outrageous way. It just needs to be in your own heart. What is he calling you to let go of? What is he calling you to repent of? What is he calling you to go and do? Who is he calling you to be? How does he want to use you? In these next few moments, as you're examining this and as we're responding with worship, ask yourself, God, what do you want of me? And I'm willing to do whatever you ask. Let's pray.
God, as I look around this room, I see so many people that have been in this community for so long that have made great contributions. And Lord, I see faces that are new, that are, that are getting acclimated, that are getting acquainted with your body here in this church. God, and I, I, I know that just like all others in this room, that God, that we desire to see you move in Alma, but it's first starting in my own life. So, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room that, you know, whatever the situation is, if it's an unrepentant sin or if it's a um, neglecting some sort of call in their life or if they've been prioritizing the wrong things, God, whatever it is that you bring them to the altar of your grace and you shower your grace upon them and they see that they can repent and then get up and they can go. They, they can follow you, that you are a trustworthy God, that you are a God worth losing everything for. That what Jesus tells us to give up, God, that you replace with so much more. And maybe it's, it's, it may never be material things. It may never be the things that we think and that our worldly view tells us we should have. But at the end of the day, God, we could get something that we can never replace, which is your presence and your spirit, spirit moving inside of our lives in a way like never before. So I pray, God, that you would bring revival to each one of us in this room, to this church, and to this community for your glory so that we give it always back to you. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.